Good morning. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, Storehouse family. I hope and pray that you are doing well. Today you are visited by Chris Ryan. He is absolutely brand new to you, so I hope that you welcome him with open arms. Chris is a missionary uh, out of To Every Tribe, which is located in Los Fresnos. Uh, he hails to us from Tampa, Florida. He loves God's word. He loves to spread God's word among people that do not know who Jesus is. So I am thrilled for you to hear the preach word from Chris Ryan. Good morning, Storehouse. Morning. Let me just be a little awkward as I fumble with this. Okay. Man, it is a blessing and an honor and a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, we are very involved with Logos over in Harlingen, and so whenever Pastor Jeff, I gotta get used to calling him Hefe when I'm here. I know that's how you all know him, but it's just, that's two lives. Over there, he's not that, so. But uh, he talks often about the great things that the Lord is doing over here and, and how blessed he is to come preach here. So when the opportunity arose, I was really excited. And so this is just really cool. Um, I know you all don't really know me very well. Uh, this is my first Sunday here with you all, but I wanted to spend a few minutes to help you all get to know me. Uh, that way, when I'm up here talking at you for a while, it doesn't seem as, as strange. Oh, thank you. I thought that was great. Thank you. Servant heart right there. Um, but yes, like, the, like Marco said in the video, my name is Chris Ryan. First name Chris, last name Ryan. Don't worry. You will not be the first or the last to mix that up. So I just go ahead and get that way out, away out front. Um, and I'm a missionary to every tribe. Technically, I'm from Miami, Florida, other side of the coast. But basically the same, uh, is that latitude, longitude, whichever. Um, in fact, if you were to go out to South Padre Island, and then go across the Gulf to Florida, and then go to the Atlantic side, you would end up pretty close to where I grew up. Um, and I bring that up to say, man, the weather here is just like home. It's that warm, wet blanket that just wraps you when you walk outside. Uh, it's just like, it reminds me of, of, of growing up, so it's great. Um, I'm 33 years old, and this year I will be a cancer survivor of 12 years. And, oh, thank you. <laughs> the reason, the reason that I bring that up is uh, through the many things that the Lord used that in my life for at that time. One of them was to really, it was the catalyst for me to go into ministry full-time. And so I dropped the degree programs I was in at the time, got a biblical studies degree, went into ministry. Um, my wife Lacey and I have been married for six years. Um, we met at a church in North Florida, the Tallahassee area, um, kind of by the panhandle there. Uh, she was an intern. She did like administrative connect group stuff. I interned doing uh, college ministry and played bass on the worship band and stuff like that. And she saw me up there and just 
couldn't help but have a crush on me. So I don't know if there's a lesson in that about making sure you're utilizing your gifts in the church or not. Maybe, I don't know. That's for another day. But our first sort of foray into the world of missions together was out of that church. There was a group of people who we were really good friends with who had started an organization that fought human trafficking in Guatemala. And what we would do is we'd go on these trips down there. We'd do really crazy things that I don't condone, but we would like wear hidden covered cameras into brothels and like trying to scope out safe houses and things like that. all with the intention, then we'd come back from these trips stateside and we would strategize about like, how can we get these young boys and girls out of these situations? Where can we keep them safe? Share the gospel with them, work on paperwork, visas, things like that. Um, It was a really, really crazy time, but it was on one of those trips after we had officially started dating where the Lord really confirmed and uh, revealed his plans for us that we were gonna get married, but also go into missions full time. And so we began to pray about what that would look like. And then God brought us to about just about the last place either of us expected, which was China. We spent three years either preparing to go or living in China full time. Uh, We worked very closely with a local gathering of the persecuted underground church. Um, As you can probably imagine, Chinese Christians have very little to no opportunity to share their faith publicly in any way. And so we, we basically served as outreach for them. Uh, Lacey taught English at the university where we lived, uh, and I was studying Chinese, and so we knew a lot of people. And we would, as foreigners, it was a little easier for us to be able to share our faith and then be able to introduce people to the pastor of the underground church in a safe way. Uh, and so that was an awesome season. After our first term there, for various reasons, it became clear that the Lord was leading us to another, to stay in the missions, but to work with another sending agency. And if you're not familiar with that term, sending agency is simply, they work with churches and they help missionaries get to the field, care for them, train them, help with like working through finances and things like that. And that's what brought us to Two Every Tribe and to the Valley. Um, If you're not familiar with Two Every Tribe, basically we just wanna see Jesus worshiped everywhere among all places, unreached and unchurched. And so we train missionaries, we send them to the field where they can evangelize and disciple local indigenous people who can then form into their own self-run churches. We are finishing up our first term with Two Every Tribe, which takes place for everybody in the valley. And it's very training intensive. And we also get the opportunity to partner with a lot of local churches in the valley, which is where we are so close to Logos in Harlingen. And then after this, we'll all of us be getting ready to go to our various long-term destinations where we'll have to do more like financial support raising and visa paperwork and all that. But for Lacey and I, we are headed towards some work going on in Europe where Two Every Tribe has had the opportunity to um, begin some work in some of the most atheistic regions on the planet. Um, So we're really excited about that. But all right, I think that's enough about me, but that should be enough to at least... Uh, give you an idea, <laughs> and we'll, not that way later when we talk, we can just talk about you. You'll know all you need to know about me. But we are going to be continuing our series in the parables this morning, looking at two really short ones in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 44. If you'd like to turn or click there now, that'd be great. Um, and they're so short, really, that there's no reason that you shouldn't have them memorized by the time we leave. So I think the ushers will be checking at the door. Make sure you'll get to pull a prize out of the treasure chest like a VBS if you get it. I'm just kidding. 
Uh, don't expect that. But there is something to be said about how short and sweet these parables are, how great these truths are to internalize, to not only encourage each other, but to, be, to share with non-believers as the Lord provides the opportunity. So and I'm going to give you the main idea we're going to walk away from learning today. I'm doing all the hard work for you later when someone asks you, hey, what was church about today? You don't even have to think about it. Just tell them this thing here. But we're going to see that the kingdom of God is of infinite value because even though the cost is great, gaining the kingdom is a joyful trade-off. So let's pray before we dive into the word together. Father, again, I'm just so thankful for the opportunity to be here worshiping with this body of believers and diving into your word together. I pray that you would be opening our hearts and our minds, Holy Spirit, to the truth that you have spoken in your word, Father, and that we would not bend it to us, but that we would bend to it, uh, and that your name will be glorified in all that we do and learn and say here this morning. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so in the first sermon of this series, Nathaniel did a great job talking about what the reason for the parables are and why they're used and things like that. I kind of wanted to just re-bring that back up so that uh, our heads are around that as we move into another set of parables today. Also in that first week, we looked at the different kinds of hearts and the receptivity to the gospel and the parable of the sower. And then last week, we talked about forgiveness and the unforgiving servant. Last week, we were also in Matthew 18. So I want to kind of dial us back into the situation that's surrounding Matthew chapter 13 as we head back there today, because it's actually going to give us some really cool insight into what Jesus is getting at with these parables. In Matthew 13, Jesus is facing increasing opposition from the Pharisees. They, along with most of the crowd that's following him, are anticipating that when the actual Messiah actually comes, he's going to be ushering in God's kingdom. But they're looking for a physical, political kingdom, which explains why when Jesus enters Jerusalem before he's crucified, they could be worshiping and praising him when he arrives, but then just a few days later asking for him to be crucified because he's not doing what they think he's supposed to do. So Jesus begins to teach that the kingdom is, his kingdom is not a physical one, but spiritual. All of the parables in Matthew 13 actually run under the banner of this main theme. This is what life in my kingdom is truly like. And so now we'll start with our main text in verse 44. And you'll notice, too, that these, are, we group, these two group parables are grouped together, and they often are. That's not just like a convenience thing. Hey, they're short. Let's get them out of the way together. Um, they're actually, uh, Jesus would often, in his teaching, pair two illustrations together with their own sort of unique emphasis that are saying the same general point. He actually does this just a few verses ago in Matthew 13 with the uh, parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. But let's start in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We'll stop there for now. So first off, we see a man walking in a field, and he finds treasure. His response is probably a bit of a surprising one. He covers it back up and runs to sell all that he has to buy a field and get the treasure. Then, and this is a, a really cool part of this to pay attention to, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So this man's reaction to finding the treasure hidden in the field drives him to pure joy, and so much so that he goes and sells all that he has to get this field. Not just some of his stuff. He doesn't like partially commit. He doesn't go home, 
take stock of what he has and think, I feel comfortable offering this and we'll go from there if that doesn't work. He sells everything just so he can buy that field that has this treasure. And that's what he does. He gives up everything he has out of this one word, joy. Let's move on to the next parable and then we'll dissect them together. Uh, Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here we have a merchant in search of fine pearls. In ancient times, pearls actually were things of like really great value. In some situations, they, could, they were even more sought after than gold. And this merchant isn't just searching for any pearl, but fine pearls. Um, the, one of the ways the Greek can be translated here is it's exceedingly precious, this word for, that we use for fine, and I, I think exceedingly precious is just a really cool way to think about the value of this pearl. But so this merchant is someone who knows what he's looking for, and he has spent a career developing his eye for finding them and has built his life on trying to find it. So when this merchant finds the one pearl of great value, he recognizes it, as the fulfillment of a lifetime of searching. Like the man in the field, he recognizes the worth of this pearl and is willing to pay the same cost that the man in the field pays to obtain it. Giving up everything to get this one thing is a no-brainer. The value of this one thing outweighs the combination of everything else in these two men's lives. The cost he has to pay and think about it for the merchant this time, this is not just all these, his possessions and all of like, his wealth, but he has a business he's built. The cost of the merchant giving up everything is pretty great. It's nothing compared to this pearl, though, and he does it. So what we have in these two short parables are essentially the same main idea spelled out in different ways. To, to people on the outside, Selling all that you want to buy a field would look crazy. Think about the people who are missing the point of the parables and are looking at what these people are doing and don't understand why they would do this thing. Like imagine how many people had maybe walked through that field before and thought, why would this man give up everything to buy this field over here? Or think about the merchant, sure, and how they would view the merchant. Sure, pearls are like really valuable, but your whole life savings, like everything you have to get just one, including the business that you've worked your whole life to establish, trade it away for one pearl. I can't imagine how foolish people probably thought the people in this parable were uh, when they missed the meaning of what Jesus was getting at here. But we see that the joy of finding this treasure elicits the same response as what the overwhelmingly precious value of the pearl drives the merchant to do. Both of them had eyes to know what it was they were dealing with. And even the great cost they both pay is more than worth it in the end. And so now you can see where we can make the connection to the overall point of the parables of Matthew 13. If they are all about what the kingdom is truly like, then we can clearly define what the treasure in the field and the fine pearl represent. They are the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus who knowing is of infinite value and following is worth every cost to pay to follow. And whether um, it's Jesus who knowing is of infinite value, the greatest treasure, now you can get an idea why Jesus paired these two parables together. Whether intentionally or not, happening upon these treasures and recognizing what they were led the men to sell all of their possessions to obtain it. 
The value of the treasured items drives the man to count every single thing he owns as a loss compared to the surpassing value of the treasure and of the pearl. So that's where we see the main idea from these parables today. The kingdom of God is of infinite value. And when we say the kingdom of God, we mean all of the beautiful things in the kingdom. Jesus, discipleship, following him, living in the kingdom as new creations. Another thing about these parables is that they do not shy away from the cost of being a follower of Jesus, of being in the kingdom. It took everything. But both scenarios required the man to sell everything he owns. But the value of the kingdom took what on one hand was the loss of everything and actually turns that transaction into a net gain. Even giving up of everything you have cannot outweigh the value of the kingdom of God. The people did not understand that Jesus' kingdom was spiritual, not physical. And so as they learn the cost of being in the kingdom, this is when the followers start to leave. We see another aspect of this played out a little bit later uh, in Matthew 19, when Jesus has an interaction with a rich young ruler. This man had asked Jesus, what else do I need to do to be in the kingdom? I followed all of the commandments, so like, what else is there for me to do? And then Jesus has an interesting reaction that we'll pick up in verse 20 of Matthew 19. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus has this interaction with the rich young ruler, who is so close to the kingdom, but then walks away downtrodden from the conversation with Jesus once he was told the true cost of the kingdom and realized that he wasn't willing or able to pay it. The cost is great, but thankfully, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We don't really know if the rich young leader actually understood the true nature of the kingdom or not, but the rich young ruler does actually get a sense of the cost it would require to follow Jesus. In his case, he looked at that great cost it would be to give up his wealth, and he just couldn't do it. But to the people listening to Jesus' parables, trading everything for the treasure of the pearl was uneven in their minds. They couldn't imagine giving up everything for that treasure or that pearl because they didn't understand what it truly is or what its true value really is. Because the reality is, it is an uneven trade, but not because of the value of, our, of the possessions, it's because of the value of the treasure. Take a moment to think about what life is like without Christ. All of the sin, the shame, the ugliness that separates man from a just and holy God that can have nothing to do with such depravity. Christ paid for that with his death on the cross, and by faith in him, our sin and shame is dealt with there. But as incredible as that is, that isn't even all. When we believe in him, the perfect, sinless righteousness that belonged to Christ is then transferred to us. Think about that uneven trade for a second. Christ bears our sin and shame, we get his righteous deeds, and are made right with God, restoring our relationship and place in eternity with him. Jesus is truly greater than any and all of the treasure, possessions, and things that this world contains. Some of you may be familiar with the person David Livingstone. He was a very famous explorer, 
to Africa. Um, and I'm not condoning every single thing that he ever did, but he was also a missionary uh, that God really uses one of the first people to make a lot of gospel inroads to a lot of areas there. Um, and he also fought mightily against the slave trade. And through all the pain, suffering, and turmoil that he and his family faced, that ultimately culminated in his disease and death on the field, he was able to say in an address to university students at Cambridge not that long before he died, all these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. How can, how do you, how can someone say something like that? How, how can we be in a place where we could think about all of the things that we've had to give up to follow Jesus and say, oh, I don't even count that as a sacrifice. That wasn't even anything. Well, in light of everything that we go through, do, and have, the supreme value of the kingdom is worth so much more. Not everyone will recognize the kingdom and few are willing to pay the cost, but those that are receive the greatest treasure that there ever has been or will be, which is Jesus. We're going to actually take a quick look at two other places in the New Testament that sort of further flesh out the idea that these parables are getting after in regards to the infinite worth and preciousness of Jesus paired with the cost of following him. I'm going to flip real quick to John 12, verse 3. You can, if you'd like to, if not, I'll be reading it. But this is the story shortly after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead and he's in Bethany. And they're sharing a meal a few days for the Passover. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples, they're all there. And then Mary does something interesting. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the, for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So yeah, yeah we see Martha, this, in the setting, we're sharing a meal, Martha is serving, Mary does this thing. When what we learn from this passage is ultimately that the worship of Christ is the most supreme thing and is above every other even good thing, like taking care of the poor. But I want to draw attention to what, how Mary models that here. She takes this expensive perfume and anoints Jesus. Um, the worth of the ointment we're talking about here is somewhere close to like a year's worth of salary. A whole year's worth of salary. Mary is just willing to throw away that money at the feet of Jesus to honor and anoint him. He, because we see that he is supremely valuable above all else. Even a year's worth of salary is nothing compared to bringing, worshiping Jesus. And now real briefly, I'm gonna to flip to Philippians 3, uh, verse three through eight. The letter of Paul to the Philippians is an awesome letter where he's talking about how he wants the Philippians' minds to be centered around the gospel and the joy of the gospel, first and foremost, above everything else. And the crazy thing about it is that he's writing it from prison, but he's still able to say that. And in chapter three, he begins talking about some ways that he has had to give up a lot that he had that were good things in his life. And we're gonna pick it up in chapter three, verse three. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I've always thought it was crazier that he says blameless and how good he followed the law. Whatever gain I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul here is talking about all these reasons that he could have confidence in the flesh. But look, and look at Paul's resume here. It's pretty impressive. Both, both in the things that he can control, which was how he performed at his job, which was really well, and the things he can't, which were his pedigree by birth. He had quite a bit to hang his hat on. But then Jesus knocks him off his horse on the way to Damascus and opens his eyes while physically then blinding them, which I always just thought was a cool part of that story. But now Paul knows that Jesus is the thing worth more than anything else, even all the great things he could boast about himself. In fact, all of his pedigree and performance is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. David Livingstone saw this, and it drove him to bring the gospel to places that desperately needed it, no matter what it cost him. To him and Paul here in Philippians, Jesus is the treasure in the pearl, something that was amazing to gain and someone exceedingly precious to know. No matter what the cost is, trading for the kingdom is worth it because we gain Jesus. So, what do we do with this? What's our application? Well, first and foremost, we should be stirred to move, to action. Now, I want to highlight that it is an absolute reality that salvation is God's work alone from start to finish. We are saved by grace through faith, and it's his doing from beginning to end. But our response to that salvation should be one of joy to follow and serve our king, like the man in the field's response of selling everything out of joy to obtain the treasure. It should be full of action. Our response to Jesus should be the same. We should joyfully embrace following Jesus as king, living in life in his kingdom now that requires us to follow him in obedience all of the time. For a lot of Christians, or I guess I should say Christians, that only really happens on church on Sunday and maybe during events where there's a lot of people around where we're getting excited about the things of the kingdom. If that's you, it's probably time to examine your heart. Do you respond in joy to the things of the kingdom or do you truly not recognize how valuable it is and are you maybe not willing to pay the cost? Because the kingdom is of infinite value because even though the cost is great, gaining the kingdom is a joyful trade-off. And it will cost much of you. Being a disciple of Jesus means dying to yourself, literally laying it all down before him, giving up everything and believing in him instead, and following him as Lord of your life. That could mean leaving money on the table at a really good job or leaving relationships behind. It might be leaving our reputation behind, which is something that we see Paul working through all throughout the epistles. You also don't get to decide what is good or right or wrong for you anymore. Jesus does through God's word. The world doesn't say what is right or wrong. Society doesn't. Social media doesn't. Your friends don't. It's Jesus. 
That's a hard way to live. And it requires everything of you and a lot of denial and death to yourself. But praise be to God that Jesus is worth it. And if you truly believe that he is supremely valuable, it will be a joyful transaction. And thankfully, he's given us a helper, the Holy Spirit, to walk us through the process and conform us day by day more and more into the image of Jesus when we believe in faith. It truly is by his power and his power alone. So think about what you may value more than the kingdom. What do we pour our hearts, our money, and our time into that isn't the treasure that cannot be outvalued? Or the pearl that is beyond precious? This is a call for you, Christian, to examine your heart and repent of the things you have put value on that should be in Jesus instead. My wife and I have been walking through infertility in our marriage. Having something... Uh, having children is something we have desired for basically all of our lives, and still do, very much so. But I'm sad to say, as friends and family, and even teammates, uh, began having children for the first time, and then immediately after having more children, uh, and we kept getting negative pregnancy tests after negative pregnancy tests after negative pregnancy tests, I began to grow so bitter. I thought it was unfair and wrong that God was making me watch others enjoy what I wanted. And so I neglected so many things. My wife, community with the body, I could, that list could be, it's way too long. But thankfully, God brought me to repentance, opened my eyes to my sin. But the thing is, I had placed so much value on being a parent, on having children, that not being one, or not being able to have any, made me not value or forget the value of everything else. You see, that's when, where, one of the, where this gets kind of hard, is it aren't always, they aren't always bad things that we value more than the kingdom. But even good things in the wrong place are sinful if they take up the places in our hearts that belong to Jesus. So this is a chance for you again to examine your hearts and see if something in your life is getting more value than Jesus. Because Jesus is the remedy we need. Whether we've been aware of it, looking intently for it, or carrying on, aware that something is out there much more valuable than we could imagine, turn to Jesus. Give up everything to follow him. He is infinitely worthy and exceedingly precious. Like Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So there's one more piece of this I want to cover for a few minutes before we're done this morning. We've talked a whole lot about the cost of following Jesus, about how infinitely worthy he is, and a little bit about what we gain. We gain him, salvation. And as great as that is, there's actually more that we gain in the kingdom. So later on in Matthew 19, that story of the rich young ruler, uh, he leaves, and then Jesus talks about how difficult it's going to be for a rich person to enter the kingdom because of the great cost involved. The analogy he uses is that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Naturally, the disciples are a little bit surprised by this and go, well, how is anybody going to be saved if that's what it takes? But that's when Jesus says what is one of my most favorite passages of Scripture, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation truly works and is secure because it's God orchestrating it. And then our good friend Peter comes in with another great question that we're going to pick up in verse 27 of Matthew 19. 
Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter picks up the fact that, okay, well, Jesus called us and we did leave everything behind. Does that mean something special for us now? And whether or not his intentions were selfish or not, this is a good question to ask. So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, talking to the disciples. And now here's the really cool part. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So when we first moved to China, one of the things that people in China asked us most often was, wow, you left everything to move here? Like your friends, your family, you're not around anybody you know anymore? How could you do that? That must be really hard. And on the one hand, these were really early uh, opportunities for us to share the gospel with these people, where we got to let them know how supremely valuable Jesus is and how he is worth giving everything up for and worth giving, giving everything up for to go tell others about him. But still, it was really hard and a very lonely time. If you support missionaries or, or end up supporting missionaries, pray for them. The, the, lone, the, the lonely dark nights are really dark and lonely in the field. But then we finally got to meet the local underground church body. We went over for this incredible meal of huoguo, hot pot. It's this really great thing where like you, you cook all this food in front of you in this big broth, you're talking, sharing, catching up, you eat, you cook more. It's like two hours long. It's this great experience, communal experience. We laughed as we fumbled through our transitor apps trying to understand each other because we couldn't speak each other's languages. And as far as we've come technologically, translator apps are still really bad. Uh, we say, we, uh, let's see, we all, yeah, we, we played games and laughed hanging out with their small children. We sang songs and prayed together in English and Chinese at the same time. We worshiped God together that night across every cultural and language barrier that could ever exist. We immediately had a family in China and it was all because of Jesus. Where else could anything like this happen on the earth where you could just instantly be that close with people? It's only in the family of God. It's only in the kingdom. And we gain that. It's so cool. You see, when we give up everything to follow Jesus, it is a whole lot that we give up. It's everything. But we gain so much too. We enter into the body of Christ and we receive more brothers and sisters and family than we could ever imagine. And some of us have had to walk through the hard conversations of, with close friends or even family that because of our faith have had to separate. But this family will never leave. It will never go away. It truly is a hundredfold, like Jesus says. And we aren't even in eternity yet. <laughs> I can't imagine what life's, life in God's kingdom is just so much more great and sweet than we could ever imagine. We also gain community, which this is something that the unbelieving world craves even when they hate religion. I've been reading a lot about uh, atheists that want church without the religion. Literally, these gatherings of, of people were like, we go through the motions of church, and all of the communal aspects of church, but there's no mention of God or religion whatsoever. There's a, there's a lot of, there's a movement in the nightlife industry of people running bars who are, they either used to be church, they went to Christian college, or you know, familiar with church somehow, who are wanting to recreate 
the kind of communal environment that can only be found in the body in the nightlife industry, but without, again, religion or God at all. Or ask any ex-evangelical, if you're familiar with that term. If you're not, this is a movement of people who have grown up in the church but have sort of rejected traditional doctrine and are either not claiming to be Christian at all and and like sort of fighting against the doctrine of the church or are even still trying to call themselves Christian but are twisting doctrine progressively in a way that's not biblical. But ask any of them what they miss the most about their time in church and they will tell you that they miss the love and fellowship that they experience with their church family. See, we were created to be in community and even the unbelieving world is looking for ways to make that our own reality. And we gain that in Jesus when we give everything else up to follow him. We also, this is one of my favorite ones, we gain a mission that will not fail. And no, I'm not, this is not the like, go sign up for a missions trip now plug. Um, but some of you might have to face the reality that God has that in his plans for you. But Matthew 28, at the end of the book, one of my favorite passages of scripture, you'll know this as the Great Commission, In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples right before he goes to heaven that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. If you're searching for a purpose in life, there's look no further than this, Christian. You've gained one. We are to preach the gospel, make disciples where we are every day, and be sure that it's happening across the globe. And this is the best kind of mission to gain because it goes forth from the authority of Jesus, and he is the one doing the work through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It cannot fail. We gain a mission that cannot fail for God's glory in Jesus. And then in Galatians 5, we read about these things called the fruits of the Spirit, and they are all these things we gain in the kingdom of God as well. Peace that surpasses all understanding, even in times of our greatest trouble. Love, true love that actually cares for others more than itself. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says in Galatians 5, actually, that against these, there is no law. There's no law to how much we can practice these things in the kingdom, and that sounds like a pretty cool place where all of this stuff is practiced without end. You may have noticed that I didn't mention joy in that list, and that's just because I wanted to end our time this morning coming back around to our man in the field finding treasure. When he discovers this treasure of infinite value worth giving up everything for, it And his his reaction uh, to discovering it and selling all that he has is pure joy. In our broken world, so many people are desperate for the light in the darkness to feel something instead of worry or fear. And there is joy, true joy, in the kingdom, in Jesus, in him alone. The kingdom of God is of infinite value because even though the cost is great, gaining the kingdom... Gaining Jesus is a joyful trade-off. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful and humbled to think of uh, our standing before you, uh, the weight of our sin, the debt that we could never repay, and yet you did that for us, Jesus. You made a way for us, you chased after us, and you saved us. You are the treasure that is 
of infinite value, and giving up everything to follow you to be in your kingdom is worth any cost that that might be. I pray for us and every, per- every believer in this room today that as we go forth uh, into the world that we would be mindful of these things, mindful of the truths of your scripture, mindful of if, it, if we come to a place where we have to give up a lot to make you known, to worship you, uh, that we would do it without hesitation uh, and trust that and know that you are supremely valuable and worth it all. So I just pray that uh, you would remind us of this constantly, Jesus, and that as we go forth, everything that we do and everything that we say would be to make your name glorious and famous and honored above all else and all the earth. It's in your holy name, Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen.